Hello and welcome to Author in Your Classroom from Plazoom. My name is Helen Mully and the author joining you in your classroom or wherever you're listening for this episode is a writer whose list of credits is by anyone's standards incredibly cool. He's written for TV, including two episodes of Doctor Who. He's written scripts for some really successful movies. And he was also the scriptwriter for the amazing opening ceremony at the London 2012 Olympics. Above all, though, he is the author of multiple funny, smart and ever so slightly bonkers children's books, including three sequels to Ian Fleming's Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, not to mention his latest novel, Noah's Gold, which I can't wait to talk to him about. Welcome to the podcast, Frank Cottrell Boyce. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. It's so lovely to have you, Frank. And as I said, I really do want to talk to you about Noah's Gold. But before we get on to that, if it's okay, I'm just going to make both of us feel pretty ancient for a moment and point out that whilst the 2012 Olympics feels like it might have been yesterday, to me, in truth, a good proportion of our listeners won't actually have been born when (laughs) it happened. So for them, perhaps you could explain just a little bit about what it meant to write a script for the opening ceremony. Well, <laughs> the first thing to remember is that you were told, I was asked by my friend Danny Boyle, who was directing it, if I would like to help him create the opening ceremony. And obviously it doesn't have a script like a movie. There's weren't, there weren't talking parts. It was really a huge dance and musical spectacular, but it had yeah. to make sense and it had to be emotional. And that all sounded interesting. What I didn't kind of quite get was that it also had to be all ready for the day the Olympics started, which is not how it works in films or books. You can (laughs) ring up your publisher and say, it's got to be a week late. You can't really ring up a billion people who are going to watch it on television and (laughs) on the internet all over the world, including the Queen, and say, listen, can you give me, (laughs) can I get get an extra hour? So in the weeks before, it was just like the most. That's a serious deadline. It was a very, very, very serious deadline in which the Queen was involved and all the best athletes in the world were, and Michelle Obama and Barack Obama and all these people were coming. So it all had to, you couldn't be late with your homework. You couldn't say, listen, the dog at it. <laughs> so it was, it was intense. It was very, very intense. And it, it was, as you say, it, it's very different from, from a movie or, or a book, but it was storytelling, wasn't it? It was storytelling. It was, it, you know, it, you had to tell a story of, well, it told it was the London Olympics, and we tried to sort of tell a story about London and about Britain. And it included, if you want to watch some of it on YouTube, some of the best characters from children's fiction. Because one of the things that Britain should be really proud of, and that we do really, really well, is children's literature. So there was a great big section with Captain Hook and Voldemort and all the baddies from children's books who were all vanquished by a fleet of flying Mary Poppinses. <laughs> Oh, that is bringing it all back. Yeah, it was a great night having to say, are all the, are you sure all the Mary Poppinses are safely, (laughs) safely home? (laughs) Hundreds of Mary Poppinses with umbrellas flying down out of the ceiling. It was, you know, kind of a great job. You have to keep an eye on your Mary Poppinses. (laughs) And I I do recommend to the teachers and parents who are listening, if you you can look it up on YouTube and find a clip, it is such a great thing to share with, with your class. It's just, just brilliant. 
But first and foremost, though, Frank, I, I think you would probably describe yourself as a children's writer. Is that is that fair? Oh to yeah, hundred percent. That's what I'm on this planet to do. Yes. Does that mean it's your favourite thing to do? Why? Why is that? Um, because the books I read when I was of the age that people read my books, which is nine, ten, eleven, twelve, yeah. they completely changed me and they made me happy. And this year has been a very difficult year in lots and lots of ways, you know, people because of the, the pandemic and I've had people to look after. My father's very ill and it's been a real strain. And the books that I read when I was your age, when I was 9, 10, 11, 12, they pointed me towards happiness. Do you know what I mean? I can remember so many things from those books, little pleasures that get you through. And I've kind of reread them and relied on them and they built a happy place in my heart. And if I can do that for somebody now, you know, if I can give someone a, a little roadmap of how to be happy that you look back on when in the difficult times ahead, that's an amazing thing to do, you know? So my, I have very, very happy memories of books like The Wizard of Earthsea, which we might talk about, um, the Moomin books, little things that happened in those books that, so for instance, in the Moomin books, which I absolutely loved and I really, really wanted to live in Moomin land and I wanted <laughs> Moomin Mama to be my mom and all those kind of crazy things that you wish when you were a kid. But Moomin Mama always made coffee and pancakes for people. So now, even if things are really bad, if I make some nice coffee, I am slightly back in Moomin land and just that bit happier. <laughs> and if I see a nice wardrobe, it's like, there's Narnia is in there somewhere, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those, those are really important. And I don't know about you, but even in, in my ancient years, I still go back to those books that made me happy when I was nine, eight or 10 and, and just get that little bit of comfort reading. Yeah, I don't even them. have to read them. I can just sniff them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Frank, your, your first novel for, for children, Millions, came out in 2005 and you've written a dozen or so since then, yeah. which which I throw off as if that's something very very yeah. small. Yes, you've written yeah. a dozen or so really good books since then. That's quite extraordinary. In between, you know, your film scripts and, and your TV extravaganzas and, and all the rest of it. So what was it, do you think, that made those dozen or so ideas the ones that ended up as full-blown as books. stories? Gosh. That's such, a, that's such a great question because I keep a big fat notebook full of ideas. <laughs> but actually, you only need enough of an idea to get going. Yeah. I mean, people always ask writers, where do ideas come from? And the real truth is that ideas come when you start. You know, you only just need enough of an idea to start. And as soon as you start writing, other ideas start to come. They just start to come. So the idea is like bait that you drop into the sea and other fish will come and eat it. So often the first idea for a book isn't in the book at the very end. By the time you finished it, it's gone completely. Oh, what? so for instance, when I was when I was little, I had I have a blood disorder, so I'm in hospital a lot. I think I started writing books set in hospital. Like every single book I've ever written started as set in a hospital, and then it, they never ever end up there. <laughs> it's always gone. So they they you know you begin the journey and you end up somewhere else completely. You just need the courage to start writing. And it's when you're doing it. And that's true of baking. It's true of football. Once you get going, you have better ideas, don't you? Just get started. Just get just get into it. So Noah's Gold, your, your most recent book, this is a plot that revolves around <laughs> no. half a dozen children stranded on an island. I'm not going to say an island in the middle of the sea because you don't need to say in the middle of the sea when it's an <laughs> island. And 
one of these children we we think might have broken the internet so so which bit of that story came first? yeah no which bit came first well the bit that came first was the gps there's this whole thing that night nowadays people use the gps in a car yeah and i know i heard that park rangers in america have this phrase death by gps where people have just followed their gps trusted their gps too much and ended up falling off a cliff or stuck in a gully or something like that so the b- book actually starts with them going on a school visit to what's obviously the Amazon warehouse, uh, which I've called the Orinoco <laughs> warehouse. And the GPS takes it literally, yeah, I know, really subtle. <laughs> the, the GPS <laughs> kind of gets mixed up and decides to try and take this group of school kids from, from Lima Valley in Northern Ireland to the Orinoco. So they just keep going west and west and west until they're stuck in an island <laughs> in the middle of the sea, which just seemed like a great gag. I mean, sadly, a lot of my books start with a great gag, you know, <laughs> so that just seemed like a really good gag. <laughs> it's like, well, this doesn't really look like a warehouse. <laughs> so it's especially funny because it's the geography teacher who's taking in there and driving the bus. Yeah, yeah that's right. It's completely, yeah. And also there's like th- that trust you have in teachers, which the teacher has in his GPS. So the kids are like, are we there yet? It's like, no, you're on a cliff. It's like, it's not, are, are, we, are we there yet? <laughs> well, I have to say, I, I read Noah's Gold recently and I, I did love it. It's it's funny. It's adventurous. It is truly bizarre. And the characters <laughs> are absolutely brilliant. But it's also quite thought-provoking too, I think. And we can talk a little bit about that later on what i would love now though if it's okay would be if you could read an extract from the book for us i'd love to yes i've never done this before well in which case what i'll do is i'll just pause the recording for a moment so you can find your place and everyone can have a wiggle and then we'll come back and we'll hear a snippet of noah's adventures Welcome back to Author in Your Classroom with our guest today, Frank Cottrell-Boyce. Frank, you're going to read to us now from your latest book, Noah's Gold. Before you start, would you be able to give us just a really quick overview of what's happened in the story so far, if such a thing is possible, so we know more or less where we are? Okay, so... The school geography trip has gone horribly wrong. The minibus has fallen off a cliff. They are not in a warehouse. <laughs> They're in a, on a desert, on uninhabited island in the North Sea, uh, which is happens to be the island where the internet, the transatlantic internet cable comes in for Europe. And Noah <laughs> sadly has touched this cable and the internet is allergic to Noah. So he's cut off the entire internet for Europe. So they can't use their phones to call for help or and, and nobody knows where anybody is. So nobody's looking for them. And the book is a series of letters that Noah decides he, that maybe the pillar box still works. There's a pillar box on the island. So he keeps posting letters to his dad. And this is a letter <laughs> to his dad. Uh, and he's just realized that there might be one form of technology on this uninhabited island that still works. Okay. Dear dad, I was trying to think about some of the things that you'd said about how the world turned just as quickly before mobile phones were invented. So how did they rescue people before mobile phones? And that's when I remembered that wardrobe thing with all the tiny windows in outside the old shop. And as soon as I thought of it, I ran over to it. 
The others must have thought something was happening. They ran after me. I waited for them, then hauled open the door. This, I said, is a phone box. They all looked confused. Ada said, there was one of those things right outside her, outside her house, and it was nothing to do with phones. It's full of shells with pot plants on. It's a wee greenhouse, she said. Factually, said Dario, he is right. This is a phone from the time before proper phones were invented. This is why I was needed on journey. Because thanks to me, in one phone call, I could have us all out of here, possibly in a helicopter. I was already feeling like a proper hero. You probably remember using phone boxes like this in the olden days, Dad, but we'd never seen one for real. The phone box doesn't even look like a phone. It looks more like a black cat dangling a curly black tail down the side of a big metal box. The face of the cat is a metal dial with holes in it. There are numbers in the holes. Everybody reached for their phones so they could Google how to use an old-fashioned phone because they forgot that the reason they needed to use an old-fashioned phone was that their proper phones did not work. We'll figure it out, said Eve, and then we'll call the Coast Guard. They've got boats. They've got helicopters. All we need is the Coast Guard's number. Again, everybody reached for their phones to look up the Coast Guard number. And then everyone remembered that looking up things on your phone was no longer possible. I was the one who spotted that the number was written on a piece of plastic on the phone box wall. I did not realise that the reason people say dial a phone number is that with the oldie worldy telephones, you did actually have to dial the number. It took a while to work that out. At first, we were putting our fingers in the holes and pushing the numbers. Then eventually, Eve remembered seeing it done in a movie. She dialed the number, then lifted up the handset. It purred like a cat, but nothing happened. Maybe, said Dario, you pick up the handset first and then dial. Eve tried holding the handset and then dialing, but she'd only dialed one number when the purr changed to a cat wail. She slammed the phone down. Then she picked it up again. It was purring again. Well, it didn't like that. A lot of people had ideas then about what the phone might like. They all shouted them at once. Dial first, pick up first, pick up, put down. What about the numbers written across the middle of the dial? Could they be something? Darius said he thought they were the number of this phone. Eve ran out of patience. I'm doing that hokey cokey with a little screaming plastic cat, she yelled. Please be quiet. I noticed that there were slots with writing on the side of the metal box. I pointed them out to Eve. The writing said, 50C min. Eve asked if we thought it was a code. Min is minimum and 50 must be 50 cents. Minimum payment, 50 cents, said Ada. When everyone looked to see what she was on about, she said, yeah, you had to pay to use the phones back in the day. This is a pay-as-you-go phone that doesn't go anywhere. There's one in Paddington too when he escapes from jail. Of course, said Eve. Who's got 50 cents? No one had 50 cents. No one had any coins. We searched our pockets. We searched the ground. Nothing. Eve let the door swing shut behind her. Everyone looked away towards the mainland and it seemed further away than ever it did before. <laughs> I love that scene so much. Thank you. I mean, it, it's not the most dramatic thing that happens during the book. No spoilers, but the ride on the shark is a, is a high point <laughs> for me. But it just really captures the characters and the situation they're in and how they interact together. 
And the characters, they they are they're funny and maybe they're a little bit exaggerated, but they are so real and they've all got very distinct voices. So how much of your planning for the book went into getting all of those characters just right? Um, they just sort of came to life. Really. I mean, you you have to, it's quite, a, it's, for me, that's quite a big cast and there are five characters and they're there all the time. Yeah. So you kind of had to, you kind of, you get fed up writing said Dario or said Ava or whatever. So you, you had to sort of give them really distinct voices yeah. so that the reader would know who was speaking all the time. But also they all had kind of different views on the island. And like, I have different opinions about what it would be like to be stuck on an island. So, you know, one of them thinks this is like a, a wonderful kind of fairy type adventure. Um, <laughs> one of them is completely sure that he's a hero and it's all going to be fine, but he's actually completely panic stricken and can't cope at all. And he's, he's basically cracking up and the <laughs> others are kind of saving him. They've all got a kind of different take on things and it, a way of, of exploring the island through different eyes, really. Definitely. And do you have a favourite character? Do I have a favourite? Well, I... Or is that a naughty question? There's a kind of twist, so I don't want to give too much away, but Eve, really, because she's sort of... I'm an oldest in my family and th- that kind of responsibility, let's just get on with it, we'll sort this out. I- I'm with Eve, really. Another thing that this scene really highlights um, is is one of the book's main themes, I, I suppose, which is based around this idea of Noah accidentally breaking the internet and the implications of that, you know, what, what would happen if we couldn't just look up everything we wanted to know or contact everyone we want to contact as soon as we think about it. Is this an idea that you're exploring for the fun of it or are you making a serious point or a bit of both? I mean, it was just the fun of, I mean, to start with, it was the fun of it because as a storyteller, the internet can spoil a lot of stories. So if you were genuinely lost on a desert island now, you basically would just, you know, you would use DPS and you'd make a phone call and everything would be solved. (laughs) So like even in, apparently there's free Wi-Fi all over the Atacama desert. So there is no reason to be lost in the desert at all. So the internet can spoil your stories. But also I was thinking, you know, so it's a fun, you know, it was a fun thought, you know, what would we do with it? And I'm old enough to remember the world before it. So I'm aware of how much of my own abilities I've lost because I used to be really good at finding my way to places. Um, I once drove across Brazil with a, you know, directions written on a piece of A4. And now I, I literally won't go to my brother's house <laughs> without checking, you know, the, the traffic and everything on my <laughs> GPS. So there was that, you know, it's more of an adventure if you don't have the guardian angel of the internet sweeping down to save you all the time. But it did, like, as soon as you've decided that, it does make you think about what's important, what's not important. And especially this year when we've been more dependent on it than ever. Yeah. You know, that we've, it's how we've stayed in touch. It's how we've shared news. It's how we've educated ourselves. It's how we've entertained ourselves. And we've really found out what an amazing and wonderful thing the internet is. And at the same time, we've got to remember that there is life beyond it, you know, that things, that there are things that we don't get from the internet, that we don't get hugs we don't get to smell things, you know, we don't get to to be surprised, you know, all the things that would happen if you were on an uninhabited island in the middle of the sea. <laughs> That's a really good point, the lack of surprise with, with the internet. And although it's, I mean, it is 
a, a surreal story in lots of ways. It's studded all the way through with these these nuggets of of truth, these weird and wonderful things that actually do exist yeah. all around us. And you talk about them a bit at the end and it's really interesting. So this idea that the internet really is carried by actual cables. Yeah, I know, because we, we have this magic idea that when we, you know, we talk about the cloud as though it was magic, but it, it is just in wires, you know. <laughs> They're just It's just in wires, the same as ordinary phones. And that, that something so magic can happen out of a piece of wire is amazing, isn't it? But it is also, it is breakable. Yes. And is this weird and wonderful side of reality is that where a lot of your storytelling inspiration comes from yeah I love that I mean I love the little gaps in history you know I love what happened to Laika when she went to space I wonder I love what happened to the real robot Eric was a real robot who did who was very famous and then disappeared I like to find those little gaps and and see you know what I could put in them there are so many stories just waiting yeah to tell themselves aren't there yeah, in those spaces yeah one thing I found really interesting about the plot, and you hinted at this earlier on, and I'm I'm, I'm not going to give away any spoilers. I'm going to be quite careful. But there is one thing that happens right from the start that is quite simply absolutely impossible, and that's Noah getting replies to his letters yes. that he sends to his parents. Yes. I, and I don't, I don't know if this is what you intended, but I was, I was reading the book, and to be honest, I just accepted that okay. as, as absolutely <laughs> true. That 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 just seemed to me perfectly plausible. So, what I think I want to know is, was I supposed to be a bit more clever and work out, or were you trying to to pull me into this world? I think you accepted it because you trusted me. <laughs> I did trust you. <laughs> um, yeah, he, he doesn't question very much why he gets replies to his letters either. I think no. as a grown-up, you might start to think, how is that happening at some point? <laughs> but to be honest, there's an awful lot else happening. <laughs> so That's a fair point. It's, in, in a lot of ways, it's not the most surprising thing that's happening. You know, um, <laughs> riding around on sharks or whatever is quite surprising. But I, I I thought it would be it would kind of add to the mystery a little bit because the, I, I love those things where, you know, on an island, so there shouldn't be something happening but it it does happen you know I, I like that it does and it yeah it adds something really lovely I think to to the plot when it does all all unfold and that's all I'm going to say about that I promise Frank we're nearly out of time believe it or not and so I'm going to pause the recording quickly once again but before I do, I would just like to remind all the teachers and parents listening, as I always do at this point in the podcast, that we do produce a free resources pack to go with every episode of Author in Your Classroom to help children take what they've heard from our guest and put the advice and the ideas into action in their own writing. All the packs, um, including the one for this episode, are available to download at plazoom.com. The details are in the episode notes. And Frank and I will be back in just a moment with some more author talk to wrap things up. Welcome back to Author in Your Classroom from Plazoom with me, Helen Mully, and my guest for this episode, Frank Cottrell-Boyce. Frank, there's something else I wanted to talk to you about. You are and, and have been, I think, 
from the beginning. I'm not sure about that. One of the judges for the 500 words annual story writing competition yeah. that was started by Chris Evans back in the day. In all the things you've done and all the jobs you've had, is this the toughest job that you've had? Gosh, yes, it is actually. It is because the the only criteria for 500 words is it's got to be 500 words long. Yeah. So we've had like hilarious stories about I mean, one that sticks in my mind is about a pig going into a butcher's shop and suddenly realising what was going on here and being really, really oh, wow. angry. Wow, that's fantastic. <laughs> um, and at the same time, we've had really moving stories about soldiers in the First World War or people who lost their grandmother or uh, we've had amazing horror stories. So just that huge range and then having to say this this one's better than that is usually leads to a big fight. I'd like to be a fly on the wall for that. What What do you think? the best of those stories have in common then if they're all if they're all so different is is there anything they have in common yeah i think so I, if, the, because we we are not bothered about um, spelling or using big words or any of the kind of those type of criteria i think having a voice you know like it's your own voice you can tell that the child has sort of really wants to tell this story it's got an energy to it and a kind of commitment to it like I don't know why I mentioned that pig one but it really stuck in my mind it was like you just had to accept that a pig went into a butcher's and had a conversation with a butcher <laughs> it was like yeah I love that in a story yeah do, do you know what I mean it's like this is my story and pigs can talk you know <laughs> I, I like that <laughs> It's the power, the power of the audience. Yeah, and it's like sometimes those stories don't have a great ending, but they have a moment in them when you think, I have never seen that anywhere else. You know I mean, something happens that you've never seen, even though you've read hundreds of stories and you're an old man now and you've read millions and millions of stories and you've spent ages reading things. Then something happens in this story and you think, I've never seen that before in a story. And that's usually because the child writing has been true to themselves. Because we are all unique, we are all different, right. we are all special. And there is something in your head that has never been in anybody else's head. And that might well be a pig that objects to pork butchers. <laughs> <laughs> Frank, have you tried to write a 500 word story? I did it, yes. I did it live. We had a 500 words live lesson on the BBC. And we did this thing where Charlie Hickson asked for ideas. <gasps> And I sat with a piece of paper and wrote it live there and then in the studio, which is really, really nerve wracking. Oh, and at the very end, David Williams came in and read it out and somehow got all the credit for that. I don't know. <laughs> but he read it brilliantly. He read it as though he did read it as though he'd written it, you know, but I was there on the camera. I wrote it and the kids could see words well, going up. That's his job. Yeah. But it, it, it was a screen. So you could see me sort of crossing out and hesitating. You could see there was this terrible moment when I got stuck. And it was a set time, you know, it was a school's program that had to end. So it was like, but it had a really great twist at the end. So everyone was happy. Very, very scary. <laughs> okay. So there you go. That That's the inside track. You heard it from the horse's mouth here. Tell your story. Tell that story that absolutely has to jump out of your head and into someone else's yeah. head. I think the details for this year's competition are being announced soon. I really hope that some of our listeners might be inspired to give it a go. So teachers and parents, keep an eye on the, the website. Yeah, it's, it's, it's such a great day and it's, it's so worth entering. Fantastic. And on that note, I, I think it probably is about time for us to draw this episode of Author in Your Classroom to a close. Frank Cottrell Boyce, thank you so much for being our guest today. I've had such a good time speaking with you. Thank you. This has been such a joy. Thank you. 
<laughs> and thank you too to all our listeners. I hope you are all desperate to go and grab a copy of Noah's Gold. I thoroughly, thoroughly recommend it. It's the most fun you'll have with a book this year, probably. <laughs> and also perhaps come up with your own ideas for a winning 500-word story. We'll be back soon with another guest for Author in Your Classroom. See you then. Author in Your Classroom is brought to you by Plazoom, where we are passionate about making great literacy lessons easy with inspiring, ready-to-go resources created by teachers to cover the whole of the primary curriculum. So, whether you're a teacher desperate for SATS revision that pupils will actually enjoy, a parent just as baffled by fronted adverbials as your child, or anyone looking for fun ways to keep children reading and writing during the summer holidays, we've got hundreds of brilliant ideas to explore. Take a look for yourself at plazoom.com, where you can sign up to our newsletter and be the first to find out about our special offers and the new resources that are added to the site every single week. Every episode of Author in Your Classroom is packed with writing advice and inspiration from some of the world's best-loved children's writers. Plus, there are free activities and worksheets based on each author's work to spark children's imagination on plazoom.com. Just check the episode notes for links and more. You can subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. We want to reach as many pupils in as many classrooms as possible, so please do give us a rating or a review, but above all, tell your colleagues about us and help spread the word. We know that a love of reading opens doors, not just to success at school and beyond, but to a lifetime of excitement, adventure and discovery. Let us help you make it happen with Author in Your Classroom and Plazoom.